welcome to the Dozing Off Podcast. I am your host, Lance Lewis. The point of this podcast is for me to read short stories in classic literature in a deep and relaxing tone that allows you to press play, put your overactive mind at ease, and allow you to fall into a deep sleep. For episode one, I chose James Patterson's The House Next Door book that has three short stories included. I chose the short story, The Killer's Wife. Now I'm not gonna lie, this definitely has some suspense to it, and I don't always plan to do these murderer mystery type books, but I started reading it and I got hooked, so I just knew I had to share it. I won't get through the whole book in this episode, but in episode three, I'll revisit it and try my best to finish it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, and here we go. Prologue Detective Andrew McGrath stands in front of his open liquor cabinet, shaking. Inside are just a few old bottles, most of them covered with a fine layer of dust. McGrath may have his share of vices, but booze has never been one of them. Tonight, however, he's desperate to have a drink. Partly to settle his nerves, but also because it's tradition. When McGrath first traded his patrolman's badge for a detective shield nearly 11 years ago, his colleagues at the San Luis Obispo Police Department all pitched in to buy him a nice bottle of scotch, a Macallan 25-year-old Sherry Oak, which retails for about a thousand bucks. The catch? He was only ever allowed to drink it after he'd solved a murder. Since then, McGrath has popped it open roughly once and twice a year. San Luis Obispo, a scenic town of about 45,000, tucked along California's hilly central coast, rarely seeing serious crimes. But tonight, the book has just been shut on the toughest, most taxing homicide case of McGrath's career. He's a veteran detective but this pushed him to his limits. He is very exhausted, utterly drained, shaken to his very core. So once he unscrews the cap from the heavy glass bottle after all these years, still about three quarters full, McGrath doesn't pour a nip into a tumbler. Instead, he takes a long, hearty gulp right from the source. Thick, Amber rivulets trickle down his chin. The taste is rich and floral, sharp and smoky, but the feeling is bittersweet. Wiping his mouth on his sleeve, McGrath carries the bottle into his sparsely decorated living room. Nestled next to each other on the sofa, beneath a threadbare old quilt, are his elderly parents, Leonard and Evelyn McGrath. A late-night talk show is flickering softly on the TV, but both his parents' eyes are closed. They look so calm, 
McGrath thinks, so at peace, so different from how he's feeling. With his free hand, McGrath gently lifts and retucks the blanket around their shoulders, careful not to disturb them. He turns off the television, and in the silence, hears something outside that makes him stop in his tracks. The distant whine of a police siren. Strange, given the late hour. To avoid bothering the town's residents, police officers are instructed to only use their flashing lights between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., except in extreme emergencies. So McGrath's curiosity is piqued. But as he hears the siren getting louder and getting closer, he understands. It's a professional courtesy, a friendly warning. The cops are on their way for him. But he's been expecting them all night. McGrath steps into his front hallway now. Without putting the bottle down, he upholsters his sidearm, a jet black Glock 22. He ejects the bullet cartridge and places it and his gun side by side on the entry table. Then he steals himself and opens the door. An unmarked white Chevy Impala, two squad cars are pulling into his driveway. Four uniformed male officers and a female plainclothes one. And Detective Gina Petrillo, smart, feisty, ballsy, the only woman investigator on the entire force, and therefore one of its toughest, exit their vehicles and approach. Evening, gang, McGrath calls to them. Lovely night, isn't it? Gina takes a moment to try to control the storm of emotions raging inside her. Shock, confusion, fury, betrayal. Then she readies a pair of handcuffs. Detective Andrew J. McGrath, she says stiffly. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you and... Oh, Jesus, Gina, stop it. McGrath holds up the palm of his empty hand like a crossing guard. Just tell me straight. What am I being arrested for? Gina responds with a vicious scowl. This was a colleague she once believed in, a man she once trusted, once loved like a brother. Murder, Andy. But you already knew that, didn't you? With a resigned shrug, McGrath takes a final swig of the exorbitantly priced scotch. Actually, he replies, it's worse than that. Without warning, he hurls the glass bottle to the ground, letting it shatter on his concrete front steps. Gina and the officers leap back, startled, but McGrath stays still as a statue. Much worse. Come on inside. Chapter 1 Six Weeks Earlier Know the thing I love most about this job? asked Gina. She's in the passenger seat to my right, rummaging through the plastic bag at her feet, which earlier held our grease-soaked KFC drive through dinner. We 
we've been sitting in this stuffy parked car together for the past five mind-numbing hours. So I answer sarcastically, the non-stop thrills. Gina removes a crumpled paper napkin stain with barbecue sauce from the bag. She folds it inside out, then blots her glistening brow. You're close, the glamour. It's true. Real police work isn't glamorous or very exciting. Definitely not how it's portrayed in the movies. Most of the time, our chosen profession is about as hip as digging ditches, as riveting as collecting trash, except that a hole in the ground won't ever lead you on a dangerous high-speed chase, and even the smelliest, foulest dumpster in the world won't ever pull a gun on you. But real police work is what's required to catch a very real bad guy. Like the one who's been terrorizing our quiet community on and off for nearly two years. Red Bull? Gina asks as she reaches into a small plastic cooler behind her seat. She already knows my response. No thanks. How can you even drink that crap? So I don't have to say it. Taking just one skinny, sugar-free can for herself, Gina holds it against her face for a few seconds, then cracks it open and gulps it down. I admit I could use a little pick-me-up, too. After tailing, staking out our current person ventures for 19 days straight. No breaks. No days off. I'm definitely feeling worse for the wear. I can only imagine how Gina's holding up. My loyal partner of almost seven years, and my best friend for decades. We went to San Luis Obispo High together, if you can believe it, less than a mile down the road. Gina's a trooper. She and her girlfriend are raising two stinking cute twin toddlers at home. And I don't know how she does it. Sure, I've got aging folks I help take care of, but at least they can change their own diapers. Looks like another wild and crazy night in the Pearson household, she says. Gina's peering through a pair of binoculars. I raise my own to look for myself. Through the second floor window, a modest, Spanish-style bungalow down the block. We watch as Michael Pearson and his wife Ellen get ready for bed. They change into almost matching pajamas. They brush their teeth side by side at the bathroom sink in chilly silence. They exchange a peck on the cheek, then they slip under the covers and shut off the lights. That right there is why me and Zoe are never getting married, Gina says. And they don't even have kids. I get depressed just watching. Well, your relationship's a little different, I say. Neither of you is a serial killer. At least, as far as I know. You really think he's our guy, huh? Gina lowers her voice, adding somberly. And you really think those poor girls are dead? I do. On both counts. There's been only circumstantial evidence so far linking Pearson to the ongoing string of abductions. But after I interviewed him twice at the station, he just felt off to me. I can't say why. 
but something deep in my gut tells me he's behind them. For one, he's vice principal of San Luis Obispo High School, where all the young female victims were students, and he knew them fairly well. They changed into almost matching pajamas. Two witnesses also put Pearson near Santa Rosa Park, where the most recent missing girl was last seen out for a jog on the night she disappeared 22 days ago. Like the three young women before her, she vanished without a trace. But goddammit, it, I'm going to prove Pearson is guilty. That son of a bitch is going to pay no matter what it takes. And if by some miracle those girls are alive, I'll find them too. It's getting late, and I'm starting to feel a little foggy. I shut my eyes and rub my face, trying to fight it. Maybe I'll take a quick power nap. Maybe I'll have a Red Bull after all. Maybe I'll... Shit, Andy! Gina exclaims, punching me hard in the shoulder. Look. Chapter 2 Gina and I watch with surprise as Michael Pearson exits his front door. And that might not seem like anything special, but over the past 19 days we've spent surveilling this guy. His behavior has been so predictable you could set your watch by it as long as you didn't fall asleep first. Pretty much all Gina and I have seen him do is drive to and from school, drive to and from the supermarket, pick up some dry cleaning, do some yard work, and go to bed early. As far as I can tell, he also hasn't made love to his wife once this whole time, which is criminal in my book, but not according to the California Penal Code. Tonight, Pearson has finally changed up his routine in a very big way. He was wearing pajamas less than an hour ago. Now he's got on jeans, a gray sweater, and a blue Golden State Warriors baseball cap. The brim pulled low. He's also carrying a small black duffel bag and speaking nervously on a cell phone. Although, we're too far away to hear him. That's new, I say. Yup. I always thought he'd be an Angels fan. I roll my eyes. My partner has two modes. Sarcastic and very sarcastic. I mean his cell. Pearson has an iPhone. That's an old flip phone. Damn, you're right. Gotta be a burner. But who's he talking to? No idea. But the real question is... Where's he going? We watch as Pearson finishes his conversation, hangs up, then gets into a silver Honda Civic parked in his driveway. As he begins pulling out, I glance at my watch. It's 11.26 p.m. This is by far the latest we've ever seen him awake, let alone outside his house, let alone going somewhere. Something is most definitely up. After his Honda passes us, I count to five and start my engine. Keeping my headlights switched off, I pull a gentle U-turn and follow. 
San Luis Obispo, or SLO, as a lot of us locals call it, is a lovely place to live, but it isn't exactly a thriving metropolis. This late on a weeknight, the streets are empty, and I have to keep a good distance between my car and Pearson's. The last thing I want to do is spook him. He's making a left on Conejo Avenue, Gina says. I don't tell her she's stating the obvious. If he continues straight, it's a dead end. I simply nod and make a left up that hilly street myself. Then keep an eye on the Honda as it continues to snake through this sleepy patch of residential homes. Pearson soon makes a left onto Andrew Street, the road that leads into town. But then he hooks another left, looping back around. What's he doing? Gina asks. I have no idea, but soon we find ourselves back on Pearson's block. Damn it, I exclaim, pounding my fist against the steering wheel. He's going home. He must have seen us. Shit. Or maybe he just wanted to take a little drive, Gina says. Go in circles for a while. Clear his head. Or maybe this is his ritual, I say. He's psyching himself up before he strikes again. Gina and I lie there as Pearson's car nears his driveway and starts to slow. It looks like he's taking a spin around the neighborhood after all. False alarm. Except he doesn't. He continues past it. Then makes another left on Conejo. Then heads down Andrews again. And this time, he keeps going. And Gina rubs her hands together in excited anticipation. Okay, we're back in business. I'm a little antsy myself. This is uncharted territory for Pearson and us too. The Honda heads east along Monterey Street, one of SLO's main thoroughfares. We pass a few shopping centers, a video rental store shuttered long ago a greasy taco joint right across from a hip new green juice bar. That's California for ya. Pearson approaches an empty intersection with a stale yellow light. Instead of slowing, he accelerates. It turns red, but he speeds right through. Let's pull this asshole over, Gina suggests. Maybe see what's in that duffel. I slow down, but don't stop as I reach the same quiet intersection to make sure the coast is clear. Then I speed through the red light myself. No, not yet. This is our chance. I don't want to blow it. After a few blocks, Pearson turns off the main road and stops in front of a modest two-story apartment complex. The color of burnt coffee. I stealthily pull over about a block farther down, a discreet distance away, but with a decent line of sight on him. Maybe thirty seconds later, a woman exits of the second floor apartments and scurries down the stairs. She's wearing a baggy sweatshirt with the hood up. Here comes company, Gina says, but I can't get a look at her, can you? I can't either, not from this angle, damn. 
Her face is totally obscured until she opens Pearson's passenger side door. Jesus, I mutter as the woman turns to get in. The dome light casts an eerie glow across her face. I see now that she's just a girl, a teenager, bright-eyed and apple-cheeked. I also get a glimpse of the writing on her sweatshirt, San Luis Obispo High School. Chapter 3 Now we gotta pull this asshole over, Gina pleads. She could be his next, you don't think I know that, I snap, surprised and a little embarrassed by the edge in my voice, but if we collar him now, I trail off, because Gina knows exactly the classic police dilemma we're in, a high school vice principal picking up an underage girl around midnight looks sketchy as hell, but there might be a perfectly reasonable and legal explanation. They could be having an affair, or Pearson could be helping her flee an abusive family and move into a shelter. Either way, it's not proof Pearson abducted or harmed any of those other poor girls. It won't bring them back, and it won't put him away. Run this address, I tell my partner. Find out who she is. I won't let her out of our sight, I promise. Gina gives me a troubled look, but agrees. She opens the dashboard-mounted laptop between us and gets to work. Meanwhile, I keep my eyes glued to the silver Honda, still just sitting there in front of the apartment complex. I'd give anything to know what's happening inside. Come on, come on, I whisper. Get out of the damn car, just walk away. No such luck. The Honda shifts into drive and pulls back onto Monterey. A few seconds later, Gina and I are trailing it again. Now I leave only about one block's distance between us. I'm not taking any chances. Okay, I think I got her, Gina says. Her acrylic nails clattering across the laptop keyboard. Brittany Herbert. Age 17, goes by Brit. She's a junior at SLO High. Lives in apartment 2C with her mom and stepdad. I found her Facebook page. This is her. Gina flips the screen around to show me the profile picture of a teenager posing with some girlfriends. All puckering their lips for the camera, happy and carefree. I'm positive that's the same young woman I saw get into Pearson's car. This potential next victim has been identified and just got personal. She lists her cell phone on her profile too, Gina says. Maybe we text it. And say what? I ask. Hi, Brett. We're two undercover cops following the car you're in. Don't freak out, but your vice principal might be about to murder you. Fine. Gina says, exasperated. We'll do this your way, but Damon Andy, you're taking a major risk here. I'm warning you. I nod stiffly. The pressure's on. Pearson's Honda cuts through Wessel Lowe's unimposing downtown, then heads toward the 101 freeway, 
which basically cuts San Luis Obispo in half. I start to worry that Pearson might merge onto it and try to spirit the girl out of town. I'd follow this bastard all the way to Canada if I had to. But the further out they get from our jurisdiction, the tougher it will be to keep tabs on him and Brittany and possibly call for backup. Thankfully, the Honda cruises below the underpass and stays within the city limits, for now. But it keeps going, heading northwest, toward the town's hilly outskirts. Soon, I can start to make out some tree-lined ridges off in the distance, which makes my stomach drop. I know exactly where they're going. Chapter 4 Bishop's Peak At over 1,500 feet, it's the highest point in the region by far. With its stunning views of the city, it's a popular draw for hikers, picnickers, and bird watchers alike. It's also a nightmare for law enforcement. The surrounding hillsides are rugged and treacherous. They stretch on for miles, a maze of winding trails and steep switchbacks. The tree cover is dense, the vegetation thick, the wildlife dangerous. And especially after sundown, the place gets darker than the North Pole during a lunar eclipse. In other words, it's the perfect location to kill a teenage girl and dump her body. Relax, man, Gina says, touching my arm. After so many years of working together, she can practically read my mind. This isn't his spot. We combed the peak for miles in every direction. Not just three weeks ago, but every time, remember? I couldn't possibly forget. These hills are such an obvious choice to stash a kidnapping victim, dead or alive, that each time a girl has gone missing, the SLOPD pulled out all the stops. Most recently, we deployed multiple search parties Two circling rescue helicopters, even some K-9 units borrowed from the county sheriff. Officers worked around the clock for three days. We didn't find a thing. Still, that's ice-cold comfort right now as the Honda reaches the end of the winding paved street and rumbles onto a dirt surface road. If Pearson and Brittany just wanted to be alone for an hour or two, there are plenty of motels they could have gone to instead. What are they doing here? I tighten my grip on the steering wheel and keep their car in my sights. Up the hillside we go, higher and higher. Since my headlights are still off, it's getting almost impossible to see where the road ends and the steep ridge below begins. I have no choice but to drive even slower. If Gina and I crash, Brittany's all on her own. We round a particularly steep bend. When I think I've steered through, there's suddenly a sick jolt. My front left tire is slipping off the road. Gina lets out a little gasp as I jerk the wheel onto the right, barely keeping us from tumbling to our deaths. Cursing under my breath, I drive on. Hold up, Gina says, 
pointing her index finger to the sky. I think they stopped. Did they? I can't tell. The Honda is just around the next ridge, momentarily out of sight. But I do notice the glow of its headlights is gone. Why here? Why now? No clue. But if there was ever a time to make our move, this is it. I shut off the engine. Let's roll, I say to my partner, who is already quietly opening her door and drawing her sidearm. I do the same. Crouching low, we creep slowly along the side of the wooded hill, separating us from Pearson and Brittany. Trying to move through the underbush is like trapezing through quicksand. I feel the prickly brambles and cacti scratch my skin through my clothes. But I ignore them and keep moving. Finally, we reach the crest. I look down at the Honda below with horror. Pearson is standing by the passenger side door, heaving Brittany's limp body into his arms. Police, don't move, I shout as Gina and I charge down the hill. Pearson looks genuinely shocked to see us, a real deer in the headlights. He immediately releases the girl's lifeless frame, letting her slump back into her seat. Then he takes off running. I nearly trip over myself, rapidly changing direction downhill, trying to cut him off. I'm no Usain Bolt, but thankfully, neither is Pearson. I lunge for the son of a bitch and tackle him to the ground. Shoving his head into the dirt, I quickly holster my service weapon and snap handcuffs on him in seconds. I look back at the Honda, fearing the absolute worst. How is she? I call to Gina, who was kneeling beside Brittany, frantically searching for her pulse, lifting her eyelids to inspect her pupils. Britt, can you hear me? Gina says. You're safe now. Don't be scared, Britt. It's all over. I look back down at Pearson, his face dirty and bloody, his expression stony. You piece of shit, I shout. Did you kill her? like you killed all the others. Pearson spits out a piece of gravel, then his lips curl into a chilling grin. Actually, it's worse than that. Much worse. Chapter 5 Coffee Black on the House Gina thrusts a steaming styrofoam cup of joe into my hands. I almost spill it all over myself since my attention is elsewhere. I'm standing at the edge of a roped-off section of hillside, roughly 15 feet by 20, watching a team of crime scene investigators wearing white, full-body evidence suits carefully comb through it. They're looking for a mass grave they suspect might be underneath. What a goddamn world. Thanks, I reply turning my face to my partner. I have to squint a little, since she's backlit by the rising sun. We've been at this all night. Except I take three creams and four sugars, Gina. You've only known that for years. My partner shrugs. I know your doctor wouldn't mind the change. Yeah, yeah, 
I mutter, and take a careful sip of the bracingly hot, bitter beverage. Like Gina's beloved sugar-free Red Bull, another little can of which she's guzzling at the moment. I don't know how people can drink this, either. Speaking of white coats, I say cautiously, any update on Brittany yet? I just got off the phone with the hospital. She's stabilized, resting comfortably. Relief floods through every cell of my body. Thank God, okay. We need to get down there. Talk to her as soon as she's awake. Doctors say it could be a while, midday at least. That's fine, have her labs come back. Gina tilts back her Red Bull can and drains the last few drops. Not yet, but based on her condition, they think Pearson slipped her some kind of sedative. Could be rohypnol, maybe a ketamine derivative. My guess is, he hid it in the fifth Smirnoff that was under the passenger seat, covered in prints. Sick bastard, I mumble, simmering with rage. I bit down on my bottom lip, so hard it draws a few drops of blood. Detectives, a moment. The voice belongs to the bespectacled Dr. John Hyung, the SLOPD's chief forensic pathologist. He's walking towards us, peeling off his latex gloves. The way the rising sun reflects off his white jumpsuit and hood, he looks almost ghostly, which is grimly appropriate, actually. He's been leading the team of techs searching for bodies for the past six hours. Find anything? I ask, almost afraid to hear his response. Hyung shakes his head. No trace. Our subterranean sonar imaging has almost been inconclusive. We're expanding the perimeter another ten feet all around. However, if we still don't find... I appreciate the update, John, I say deliberately cutting him off. Because I know what this expert is going to say. Young doesn't think we'll find shit buried in these hills. I practically had to beg him to even start a search. Young only agreed as a favor to me. He didn't think the rocky hillside would make a good burial spot in the first place. And the police had already combed this ground multiple times. I can't say I blame him. There's no evidence that Pearson took any other of the four victims up here. In fact, there's still no evidence linking Pearson to the other girls' abductions at all. But damn it, I was right about that creep this time. Would he really drive Brittany Herper all the way to Bishop's Peak on a whim? I don't think so. There's a method to his madness, and I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to find those girls. They've got to be here somewhere. Got to be. Chapter 6 I know I should wait for my partner to do this, but I can't. I should probably stop home first, too. Take a hot shower. Grab a change of clothes. Give my grimy teeth a quick brush. But I can't do that, either. There's too much at stake and no time to lose. So while Gina swings by her place for a bit, 
to help her girlfriend get their twins fed, dressed, and off to daycare. I drive back to the Pearson's house. I want to have a little chat with Ellen, the woman I'm convinced is the killer's wife. From our weeks of surveillance, I know Ellen usually gets up around 6.30. She goes for a quick jog around the neighborhood, has a light breakfast with her husband, then around 8, heads to school. Not San Luis High, where Pearson works, but Hawthorne Elementary, where she's the school nurse. Sure enough, when I pull into the driveway a few minutes before 7, the kitchen light is on. I spot Ellen inside wearing workout clothes. She's holding a cordless phone to her ear and pacing anxiously. Probably because she has no idea where her husband is. On my way over, I spoke to the desk sergeant back at the station, who told me Pearson turned down the chance to make his one call. He hasn't spoken to his wife, to the high school, to a lawyer, anybody. He's just been sitting in his cell all night. Does that sound like an innocent man to you, or a guilty one? Fine, I said to the sergeant. His choice, let him rot. It feels a little strange to walk right up to the Pearson's front door and ring the bell. I'm so used to sitting in my car with Gina down the block, watching it from the shadows. Seeing this place up close like this, I notice a few details I didn't before. Like the mismatched screws holding the metal mailbox to the wall. The novelty welcome mat, old and fraying, and a yellow floral design around the word Aloha. The door opens and Ellen stands there for a few seconds in stunned silence. Up this close, I notice some new details about her too like the dusting of freckles across the bridge of her nose, and her suddenly mismatched eye color. The left one is a faint emerald, the right one aquamarine. Mrs. Pearson, I'm Detective McGrath, SLOPD. I, uh, do you mind if... I'm suddenly a little tongue-tied myself. Something about this woman has caught me off guard. I always thought Ellen was nice looking, if a little plain. But now I see there's a magnetism about her. Is this about my husband? She asks. He was gone when I woke up. His car too. I called his cell, but it was charging on the kitchen counter. Is he alright? He's fine, but he's... been arrested. Arrested? Ellen covers her mouth with her hands as if she'd just seen a ghost. No, no, that's ridiculous. He didn't do it. I feel my right eyebrow arch of its own volition. I didn't tell you what he's arrested for, Mrs. Pearson. Ellen looks rattled, scared, caught. Why don't we go inside and talk, I say. Ellen leads me into their quaint living room and right away begins nervously tidying the place up. Not that it needs it. In fact, the room is meticulously clean and orderly. Even the old magazines on the coffee table are in perfectly neat stacks. 
I am sorry. The place is such a mess. I had no idea anyone would be. Please, I say, gently touching Ellen's forearm. Her skin feels clammy, but supple and warm. Let's have a seat. I'd like to ask you a few questions. We settle next to each other on a sagging beige couch. Does the name Brittany Herbert mean anything to you? Ellen squints, thinking, then shakes her head. What about Claire Coates, Samantha Gonzalez, Mariah Jeffries, or Patty Blum? Now Ellen shuts her eyes tight. Those names mean something to everyone in this town, she says. They're the four girls who, who, Ellen can't finish the sentence. So why do it for her? Who all disappeared over the past 22 months, presumed dead. Patty went missing just three weeks ago. I know, my God, it's so awful. Those poor girls. But what does this have to do with me and Michael? We need your help finding those bodies, Mrs. Pearson. My help? What are you talking about? Ellen isn't making this easy. I have a feeling she knows a lot more than she's letting on. But I have to play this carefully. You and your husband have been married for six years. But tell me, how well do you really know him? Do you think he'd ever be capable of absolutely not? Ellen exclaims, springing to her feet. You think he... This is crazy. Whatever you think Michael did, he's a good man. He's innocent. Ellen glares at me with her bicolored eyes, now wet with tears. Her emotion is so real, so raw. I almost want to believe her. Almost. <laughs>